All right, you can turn your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 19 and 20, just a, a couple of verses today. And these verses happen in a greater context, which we'll get to in the coming weeks or next month at some point. But we're going to look at a, a very, very small portion of it today. And we've been talking over the last uh, several weeks about bearing witness to God and being ready to give an answer to those who ask the reason for the hope that we have in Him, right? And so we've been asking the question, what do we believe and why do we believe it? And last week we looked specifically at the biblical concept of faith. What does it mean to have faith in God? And we said that, that faith is not uh, a blind leap in the dark. Faith is not believing in something for which there's no evidence. We also said that faith is not merely an intellectual agreement with an idea, but rather when the Bible talks about having faith, it speaks of a personal relationship and a personal trust in God, right? So we trust that God is who he says he is, and God will do what he says he will do, right? But if you think about those statements that I just made, there's a couple of things that are implied there. Um, God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do, right? Notice there that God is saying something about himself. God is revealing himself and his plans and purposes. And so as we think about a relationship with God and a personal relationship, um, that, that's a, that's a two-way street, right? When you have a relationship with someone, it's not just you talking at the person next to you, but, but they, they talk back to you. Imagine, um, I don't know what it's like at your house. Maybe it is like this at your house. Catherine, you go to talk to Travis, and he just sits there. Does that happen ever at your house, right? You're not, <laughs> right? Like, like that, that's, not, that's not much of a relationship, right? In order for, for Catherine to get to know Travis and Catherine, or Travis to get to know Catherine, there has to be communication, right? And that's what that trust is built on, this revelation of the other person and who they are. And you see it not only in their words, but also in their actions, right? So when we say that we trust God and that he is who he says he is, there's this understanding that God does make himself known. Now, in, in the realm of theology, uh, historically there's been two different categories of the way that God makes himself known, how God reveals himself to humanity. And those categories are natural revelation and special revelation, right? So a few months ago, we talked about the Bible and how we got it and how it was um, how we understand it to be the, the very Word of God, inspired by God, with, um, that it's trustworthy and reliable and authoritative for our lives. And the Bible would be an example of special revelation, of God through His Spirit working through men to speak to people, different people at different times, and it was written down, right? So that would be an example of special revelation. Another example of special revelation would be the person of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, God the Son taking on flesh and making um, his dwelling among us, right? And what that scripture says there is that no one has seen God the Father but except for the Son who was at the Father's side. And the Son came to reveal the Father to us, right? There's a, a special revelation of God through Jesus Christ, right? So that would be categories of special revelation. In the Bible, when you read about angels showing up and talking to people, or in a few weeks, we'll talk about the inner witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That, that's a form of special revelation. 
But this morning we're going to talk about the first category, which is called natural revelation. And this is the idea that when we look at the world, we can learn some things about God and who he is. All right? And this is actually what the scripture teaches. So read here with me Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. There's some context here. Paul's talking about the gospel, and he's going to begin uh, to explain the gospel and God's plans and purposes in sending Jesus. Um, But he starts out here, and he he talks about the wickedness of humanity and the the problems of humanity. And then in the midst of this discussion, he says this, Since what what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So here he's describing what we would call natural revelation, that when you look at the world, you can see some things about God. And he says, what may be known about God in verse 19 is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So God, again, this idea of making himself known. And then so we get a a few more details in verse 20. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Think about this. There, There are specific things that creation reveals about God. The first is, his eternal power. There's actually two things in there, right? That, that God is eternal, that he is without beginning, and that he is without end, right? There, there was no beginning for God. There will be no end for God. He's an eternal being. He is everlasting, right? And he's immensely powerful. We can see it based on what has been made. We'll talk about how that comes about in just a minute. And His divine nature. In other words, this is just the idea of divinity, that there is a a divine being. There is a being that transcends what we are. We're we're creatures, and he is creator. We are made of stuff, and he is not. He is something beyond creation. He is something beyond the universe, right? So we see eternal power and divine nature— And how do we see those things? It says, well, it's understood from what has been made. In other words, it's God is invisible. We talk about God being a spiritual being. We we don't see him in the way that we see one another. But when we look at the world and the things that he has created, we come to understand certain things about the one who has made it. So this is just a simple thing where we're saying God makes himself known in creation. Now, Paul uses this as part of an argument in the problem of the sin problem of humanity. And again, we'll come back to that in a few weeks, but we're just establishing this idea that that God makes himself known in creation. And many of you are just familiar with this. But today we're going to be talking about this a little more in depth. All right? So God makes himself known. We can ask the question, what is God like? All right? Well, uh, first of all, we can look at creation, but I'm going to look back at 
special revelation first. All right, what does the Bible teach about God? Right? What does God teach about himself in his word? Well, he teaches things like this. That God is self-existent. He is eternal. The Bible says that God is personal. The Bible says that God is spiritual. The Bible says that God is all-powerful. The Bible says that God is all-present. He's present everywhere. He's not spatially limited as we are. Um, that God is all-knowing. He knows all true facts. He, knows, he doesn't believe any facts to be true that are actually false. He knows the future. God is all-knowing, right? The Bible teaches that God is all-wise. The Bible teaches that God is unchanging, and the Bible teaches that, that God is all good. Many of these would be described as, as the omnis. You may have heard it, heard it said. There are, are kind of Latin ways of phrasing this. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is uh, omnibenevolent, right? So <clears throat> the Bible teaches these. And I don't have time to go through each of these today and say this is what the Bible teaches about God. But we're going to look at a couple of them, all right? Especially a couple of them that are pertinent to our discussion, right? So let's look at this idea that the, that the Bible says God is self-existent. And we could list a lot of verses. Again, I don't, I don't have time to go through all the verses. If you want more information, I've got some notes, some background stuff. Hit me up. I'll, 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 I'll send you that stuff, and you can do the, do the study. But um, God is self-existent. Well, what does that mean? It's, look at John 5, 26. It says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, all right? So God is utterly independent. He's without origin. He's not reliant on anything in creation for his existence. He is self-existent. He is the uncreated creator of the universe, okay? Again, we could spend a lot more time on that, but I got a lot of things to cover today. So just some background stuff to kind of get us into this, all right? What about eternal? Uh, Jude 25. It says, To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. So this is the idea that, that God is beginningless and endless. That prior or without creation, he, he was there. Right? We see this in the... In the um, First chapter of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word uh, was with God, and the Word was God. This idea that, um, that without creation, God was there, that God is eternal, there's no beginning and no end. All right? We're going to cover the next two together, that God is personal and immaterial, or maybe um, if we use a, a little more biblical language, you would say spiritual, all right? And so in John chapter 4, uh, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says, uh, they're arguing about how to worship God and the best ways to worship God. And the, the woman's like, well, our ancestors say worship over here, and your ancestors say over here. And Jesus talks about a time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then in, it says these are the kind of worshipers that... that the Father seeks. And then in verse 24, it says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. All right? So, what do we get from this? When we talk about God being spirit, what we're saying is 
that he is immaterial, that he is not made up of matter and energy. He's not made up of the stuff that we are made of, right? We're made of atoms and, and atoms forming molecules and molecules uh, forming uh, structures, and right? Like we're made up of stuff that we can touch. God is not like that. God is a spiritual being, non-physical, immaterial. And he's also a personal agent, right? God acts. He, he has a mind. He has emotions. He has a will. And he is, and he is able to act in the world, right? So God seeks. He, he's, he's a person. It's not just an object, an, um, uh, an immaterial object, but rather he's an immaterial person, what we might often call a mind, all right? So uh, scripture teaches that we as human beings are um, body and soul, right? There's a material part of us and there's a immaterial part of us. There's a physical and a non-physical part of us. And we would say as we talk about God in the way that the Bible describes God is that he is a non-physical being, all right? Are, we, are you with me so far? These, these things hopefully, hopefully are familiar. Um, one other thing that we'll look at this morning is the fact that God is all-powerful, and, and special revelation, the Bible, teaches that, that God is all-powerful. Jeremiah 32, 17, it says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So, in other words, God is enormously powerful. And, and in fact, over and over again, it says that he is almighty or all-powerful, right? And Jeremiah talks about his creation. He says, nothing is too hard for you. Now, now, what exactly does this mean? Is that God can if, if it can be done, God can do it. That's what we're talking about here. If it can be done, God can do it. All right? So, as we think about these attributes of God, and we begin to look at natural revelation, you start to see evidence of these attributes of God as we look at creation around us, okay? So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at some examples of how the heavens declare the glories of God and how the world that God has made shows his eternal power and his divine nature, those things that we just talked about, right? So we're going to look at a couple of different arguments for the existence of God. Now, these have existed in philosophy and science for a, a very long time, and some of these are very deep and very technical. And so the best I can do this morning in the time that we have is to give some summaries of the kinds of things that point us to God as we look at creation, okay? We're not going to be able to look at every detail of every argument. We're not going to be able to look at every counter example that an opponent might give, every objection that an opponent might give, and then the response that is given back to that. There, these, these things are talked about and discussed and, and debated, and what I'm trying to do this morning is to expose us to these arguments so that, that we can understand that, that we have great reason to have confidence in this revelation that we see in nature, all right? So, the first thing we're going to talk about this morning are types of arg arguments from cause or causation, right? This idea of cause and effect. And these types of arguments, 
It basically say, they basically say in some way, shape, or form that the world provides evidence for God's existence as the first cause or the uncaused cause of everything else. Okay. So when we look at the world, we see that there is something here, right? It's not nothing. Jim exists. This pew exists. This building exists, the trees outside exist, the weather this morning that we braved to get here exists, like the, the earth, the universe, something exists, right? And the question is, why does something exist as opposed to nothing at all? And Francis Schaeffer talks about this, he's got a wonderful book called Genesis in Space and Time. And he basically says, as we ask these tough questions, we only have a couple of options, like there aren't a whole lot of options here. And he, he basically narrows down the possibilities, and they're things like this. Something came from nothing. Something came from an impersonal something else. Something came from a personal something else. And so, as he discusses these, the reality is, that our options are few, and we have to wrestle with why is there something here at all? And historically, atheists and some cosmologists have said, well, the universe is just eternal. It's just a brute fact. The universe is just there, because here's the deal, something has to be eternal. We cannot have an infinite series of events in the past because we'll never get to the present. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But the, but the point is, something has to be eternal, or you don't get anything, right? So, a philosopher, William Lane Craig, he puts forth this argument, and it's called the Kalam cosmological argument. It's not the only cosmological argument that there is, but here's one of the arguments, all right? Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. This is a form of argumentation where if premise number one and premise number two are both true, then it naturally follows logically that three has to be true. And then he says we can do a, an, an analysis of what it means to be a cause of the universe, and that tells us some very important things. So let's examine these just, just briefly. Again, you could spend your life doing this, right? It's, it's a whole lot of fun. I encourage you to do so. Um, but let's, let's, just, let's just talk about this. Um, number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. There's, there's a key here. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Kim, you're a Sound of Music fan, aren't you? The Sound of Music got it right. Remember when... Um, Maria and the captain are in the gazebo and they're dancing and they sing that song, I must have done something good. There's an element of, of truth in that song. And, and she says, nothing comes from nothing. What's the, do you know the next line? Anybody know the next line? Nothing ever could. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. And just imagine a state where there's absolutely nothing. There's no matter. There's no energy. There's no molecules. There are no atoms. There's absolutely nothing. How do you get to a state, or from a state of nothingness to something, which is the universe? Things don't pop into existence out of nothing, which is why prior to 
uh, the standard model of the beginning of the universe and the Big Bang and all that kind of stuff, um, scientists held and tried to prove that the universe was past eternal because they understood the problem of nothing or of something coming from absolutely nothing. It's just, it's just not possible, all right? So it seems to me then that the first premise, for that reason and other reasons, the first premise is true. Well, let's talk about the second then. The universe began to exist. Well, a couple different lines of argumentation here. There are philosophical arguments about how you can't have an infinite regress of past events. That's all very important and complicated, and go look it up. It's really cool. Um, you, you, can't have, you, you can't have an infinite series of past events because let's say you had to walk an infinite number of distance, an, an infinite distance to get to here. Well, you could never get to here because infinite, it's just not possible. All right? So, but there are scientific arguments as well, and that's kind of what we're concerned about today because we're talking about how nature points to God. All right? So what are the scientific arguments for the universe having a beginning? Well, beginning with Einstein and his general theory of relativity, he predicted that the universe was expanding. And they were wrestling with why is the universe expanding? Why are these, these stars that we see, these galaxies that we see, uh, um, getting further and further and further apart? And the idea is if you um, kind of run that backwards, they get closer and closer and closer together, and they ultimately come down to uh, what the scientists call a singularity, a, a point at which everything begins, the beginning of time and space. So Einstein's theory predicted the expansion of the universe. And over the years, that has been confirmed. Uh, you may have heard of the astronomer Edwin Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope, right? That's named after him, right? He, he looked at the stars and was able to turn... To, 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 to determine empirically that the universe was in, was in fact getting bigger, was in fact expanding. So they were able to confirm what Einstein predicted, right? And again, as they look at this and run that backwards, what that means is that there comes a point in the past where it's all condensed down into one particular point and there is an absolute beginning. Lots of details there. Go look them up. It's cool. All right? Now, you're going to hear that a couple times today, right? All right. Um, the, the second line of argument scientifically are the laws of thermodynamics. And this talks about um, the, the way that energy and, and matter works. And the idea is that, that ultimately things will reach an equilibrium. It's why, like, when you walk into this room, you're not concerned about breathing because you know that the air is equally distributed distributed in this room, right? It's not like you're going to walk through the back door and all the breathable air is up here and you're going to suffocate before you can get up here, right? Like all the air is evenly distributed. And this is, this is the idea that, that, that matter and energy over time, they distribute equally. And what this would mean for the universe is that long ago, the universe would have suffered heat death if it was past eternal, all right? If the universe was past eternal, then there would be no opportunity for us to exist because all of the matter and energy would have spread out to the state of equilibrium where nothing that we're, that, like life couldn't exist, all right? So these are arguments against the past eternality of the universe. They point to the fact that the universe has a beginning. So what do we say from there? Well, Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. 
Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now we need, need to ask a question. What can that cause be? And this isn't a, a we don't know, so we're going to posit God, right? This, this, this isn't that type of argument. What does it mean to be a cause of the universe? Well, the universe is space and time. So if it's a cause of the universe, it can't be space and time. It is spaceless and timeless. The, the universe is matter and energy. And if this thing, this cause of the universe, is truly the cause of the universe, then it's immaterial. It's, it's not a material thing. It is uncaused, right? I said, like, something has to be uncaused. Something has to be eternal. It is enormously powerful because it can create the universe out of nothing. And it seems to me that it's also personal because there was a point at which everything began. It's not past eternal, which means there's a decision point of making this universe. So there's a personal agent behind this that is able to, at a, at a specific point, begin the universe, right? So those arguments, or those, those, those statements, they don't tell us necessarily that the Christian God exists. But when you look at those, those statements, those, those conclusions from, from that argument, it looks a lot like at least that first column over there, doesn't it? What God reveals about himself in the scripture, that he's self-existent, he's t eternal, that he's personal, that he's spiritual, that he's powerful, right? I got four more hours today. Goodness. All right. So that's an example of looking at the evidence and reasoning from the evidence that God is the cause of the universe, right? Or that there is a cause, and then we can ask, well, what's that cause like? There are other types of arguments, and these are arguments from design. And instead of me explaining this one, I, I just think it's better to watch it, all right? So let's see if we can take a look at this. From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. 
If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and light couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant. A change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting. Or another example of fine tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, life-permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. 
common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. So this argument from the fine-tuning of the universe talks about the fundamental uh, laws of nature, the things that we've discovered in physics and uh, astronomy and cosmology and those types of things. And it looks at these different physical laws, and there are a bunch of them. There were three examples there, but there are a bunch of them. They're all um, independently determined, and if they were off the slightest bit, and we're talking like massive numbers here, just the slightest bit, any one of them, never mind the multitude of them, life could not exist. And the question is, how do we understand that? Could that happen? Does that happen necessarily? Does it, does it have to be the case? And the answer is no, it doesn't have to be the case. It's, it's not determined. Could it happen by chance? Well, the, the, the odds are so astronomical of that happening by chance that, that the, the naturalist, the the person who wants to maintain a naturalistic view of the world where without God has to, has to postulate that there is an infinite number of universes that you could never see or detect, mathematics couldn't prove, but there would just have to be an infinite number of these things in order for us to beat the odds and be the one where life exists, all right? Just not possible, not probable. And so the best explanation, the inference to the best explanation is when we see design, there is a designer, right? There are a couple of more arguments from design. I'm just going to sum them up because I know this is, is, is going a while. But when we look at things on the cosmological level, the universe, we, we see evidence for a designer, evidence of the first cause. But when we begin to look at things on the microscopic level, it gets way cooler. <laughs> it's like... Um, when we think about our bodies and how they function, when we think about the way that life works and how um, the intricacies of the cell, and as we begin to look at the different pieces and parts of the cell, and we understand that all of it, um, all of the information for building the complex systems of the cell is contained in DNA. And when we look at DNA, it's not just a random set of molecules. It's a set of instructions for building the physical systems of the cell. And we talk about the genetic code. And you'll see an example here in this picture with um, the different letters of this code. And they represent um, different pieces of this molecule. And how they're paired together determines what kind of physical structures are made for the cells of your body? And the question is, not just where do the molecules come from, the question is, 
where does the information in those molecules come from? Because we're not just talking about physical structures. We're talking about information. And the question that we ask ourselves is, where does information come from? And when we observe information in our world, we recognize that information comes from intelligence. Let's say you were walking along and you found a book on the ground and you, you opened that book and it's not just a random assortment of letters. There's information encoded in those pages, right? We use language to convey information. Or take uh, computers and software, right? When you develop a computer software, we use a binary code, uh, on and off, one and zero. For all the computing that we do, it's incredibly complex. But it's this, this code, and if any particular piece of the code is broken, the program is broken. It doesn't run. It doesn't function. And, and what we see in, in the DNA molecule is something way more complex than our computer code. It's coded information that goes beyond anything that, that we've been able to put together. And so when you see a computer program, you reason back to a coder. You infer, what is the best explanation for this computer code? Well, there's a coder. And when we look at the DNA molecule, we look and say, what is the best explanation for this code? There's a coder, right? One more quick argument from design. Michael Behe puts this forward in his writing, his work. He calls it irreducible complexity. And he says that when you look at the cell, there is complex machinery that cannot have arisen by a naturalistic explanation. And that would be uh, naturalistic evolution. The idea of uh, random mutation and natural selection. That it's far too complex for that. And again, just humor me for a minute and check out what God has made. In Darwin's Black Box in 1996, uh, Behe spotlighted and made famous a number of really interesting discoveries that had been occurring in biochemistry and cell biology over the last two or three decades. And what, what biologists, molecular biologists, cell biologists, microbiologists have been discovering is that at the level of individual cells, there are little tiny examples of nanotechnology, little tiny machines at work. The flagellar motor is the one that Behe made most famous. It's a rotary engine that uh, powers a whip-like tail, a protein tail that functions like a propeller, and it moves the bacterium through liquid, enabling the bacterium to essentially track down its food, its food supply. And this little machine includes a rotor, a stator, a drive shaft, a U-joint, bushings, bearings, and a whip-like tail that functions like a propeller. And the machine in some, in some bacterial systems turns at 100,000 RPMs in one direction and can reverse direction on a quarter of a turn and turn 100,000 RPM in the other direction. And bacterial flagellum is a true nanomachine, about 40 nanometers in size. It's amazing. I mean, E. coli, salmonella, which are kind of our model systems for the bacterial flagellum, can propel a cell about 20 lengths per second through a very viscous medium like water to these organisms. And you extrapolate that to human um, scale. 20 body lengths per second, six foot person, 
you know, times 20, 120, 120 feet per second. Mark Spitz or Phelps would be setting uh, records with this type of propulsion. It's hardwired into a, 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 signal a signal transduction circuit that allows the bacterium to sense changes in the sugar gradient in the, uh, in, in the surrounding liquid. This signal transduction system is actually a short-term memory system where the cell is, if it's going in the direction of an attractant, a nutrient that it can use um, to metabolize, it follows that chemical gradient. If it's a repellent, it will sense that and move in, in the opposite direction. So it's more than just this engine. It's an extraordinary piece of nanotechnology. It's high tech in low life. And so uh, just by spotlighting these extraordinary pieces of nanotechnology inside cells, and the flagellar motor wasn't the only one, uh, one by any means, Behe, in a sense, opened up uh, a window for people. He opened up the black box of the, of the inner workings of the cell and said, look, this is much more complicated, uh, complex than anything that, than, than anything that the early evolutionary biologists had envisioned. Darwin knew nothing of this type of nanotechnology and cells. All right, so the argument goes like this. We see examples at the microscopic level, the cellular level, of machines that could not have arisen from successive incremental changes where there could have been random mutation and natural selection to get us to this point. Now, as we look at this, then, the inference to the best explanation is that this points to design, and design points to a designer. Now, it's important as we talk about this, because you'll, you'll hear lots of different things. Um, a creationist doesn't have to discount the idea of natural selection. Natural selection is that there are genetic changes in a, in a population where they, they have different traits, and depending on the environment, some of those traits are better for survival than others. It would explain something like going from brown bears to polar bears. But when we look at examples of, of these kinds of traits, what we often see is these mutations are the breaking of the genetic code. Something is not functioning the way it was supposed to. When we look at examples of um, antibiotic-resistant bacterial, something in that uh, bacteria's DNA breaks and it doesn't respond to the antibiotic the same way, right? This is not a gain of a function, but it's rather a breaking of something. And, and so Behe's argument, Dr. Behe's argument, is that when we see these things, they're irreducibly complex. If you took out one part, it wouldn't function and there'd be nothing for natural selection to uh, work upon to get to this structure. Now, we're running out of time. So let's talk about some assessments of these arguments, because I've, I've put forth four. I talked about arguments, argument from cause and several arguments from design, right? These are not the only arguments. This, back, uh, this flagellar motor is not the only irreducibly complex machine that we see in the cell. Um, there are many, many evidences and arguments from that evidence that we would say point to God. These, evidence, these arguments, they point to a creator. It's important that you understand that these arguments are debated. Go look on YouTube for the uh, flagella 
And you'll see people on both sides arguing one way or the other. And so I would encourage you, if you're going to study this, don't stop with the first video you watch or the first counter video you watch. There, there are arguments and counter arguments and rebuttals, and we have got to weigh the evidence and figure out, do these things mean what we think they mean? But it's important to understand that if you look at one of these arguments or the myriad of arguments they, uh, that, that there are, and if you think one of them just fails, one of them doesn't work, that doesn't invalidate all of the other examples. It's, it would be okay to make an argument and to be wrong about it. And if you, were, if you were to look at it and go, well, I don't think that argument's a good argument, but that one over here is really powerful, that, that's acceptable. But we all have to, to weigh these things. And, you know, we're refer, deferring to people who are, who are much, much more knowledgeable than we are. The other thing that's important to understand about these arguments is they don't get you to the full concept of the Christian God, okay? They get you somewhere. And that somewhere is telling us something about what the Creator is like. Spaceless, timeless, immaterial, personal agent, immensely intelligent, immensely powerful, right? What does Romans say? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, things that we can't see about Him but we can infer, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, right? What does God reveal in nature? His eternal power and his divine nature. This is natural revelation. And as we look at the world, we see these things, independently of what Scripture says, we look at this evidence and go, what do we do with it? What does this point to? What does this mean? And it points to that there is a God who is eternally powerful. Would you pray with me today? Father God, I thank you for this time that we've had to uh, look at your word and look at your awesome creation, the amazing things that you've made. God, the heavens declare the works of your hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. God, we can't fathom all the wonders that you've done. We can't fathom the, all the wonders of your being. But God, as we apply ourselves and we look at the things that you have made, we're grateful that you have revealed something of yourself. And God, I pray that as we look, that would move us to pursue you, to, to know you more, to reach out to you, as your scripture says, and find you. So God, I pray that you would help us to see your power and glory in the world. Not only to see, but respond with awe and thanks for the wonderful things that you have made, for giving us life and an opportunity to know the true and living God. We want to know you more. We pray for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.